This is Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Janet Kaufman. Janet, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Uh, today is July 9th, uh, and Janet is reading this evening at Shaman Drum, 7 p.m., right, Janet? That's right. 7 mm-hmm. p.m., from her latest collection, Trespassing. Dirt Stories and Field Notes. Uh, this is this is a unique collection because it's fiction and nonfiction, right. and so we'll We'll talk a little bit about that later, right. Janet, if that's, if that's good with you. Um, to kick off, I will read the bio in the back of the book. Janet Kaufman is a professor of English at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, she is now retired, right, yes. Janet? So I'll just amend it a little bit as we go. She is the author of three books of short stories, Characters on the Loose, Obscene Gestures for Women, and Places in the World a Woman Could Walk. Winner of the Rosenthal Award from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. Three novels in the trilogy, Flesh Made Word, Collaborators, The Body in Four Parts, and Rot. And four collections of poems, including The Weather Book, which was an AWP award series selection, and Five on Fiction. So, but there's so much more to Janet than a list of of awards and accolades, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't say anything about farming, does it? It doesn't. No, no. It, yeah. or or passion yeah. and yes, right, and and a fine mind, <laughs> and and I think bucking conventions. I think that might be well fair be, to add. with this book. I think it really missed the farming because that's part of it. Well, there's yeah. on the yeah, there's clip art on the front of a farm, a farm, a barn, a red barn with a sun and one cloud. And, and and then a terrible dry patch of barren earth. The, I was glad they put that little cloud in there because one of the essays in there addresses sort of the fantasy of the clip art farm. So, yeah, it's nice to see a little cloud over that idyllic scene. <laughs> right. It could even have a little gray edge, I guess. Yes, to it be, could. <laughs> to be more accurate. Um, but, yes, yeah, so, Janet, you just uh, this recently retired from Eastern Michigan yeah. University. Um, so uh, yeah. how is that going? Is there, uh, well, I can't tell. What's the... life like afterwards? Or, or I guess fall hasn't come yet. No. So who's to know? I will know in September. <laughs> yeah, because right now it's pretty much like life as usual. But, yeah, I taught at Eastern for 20 years, and, so, and I taught for many years before that at Jackson Community College. So it was time to look at some other things, and I've got plenty of other things to do. Well, what, what brought you to Michigan so long ago? Because you, you were born in Pennsylvania That's right. and went, attended the University of Chicago for your right. PhD. Yeah. I grew up on a tobacco farm in Pennsylvania. So I've always been involved with farming as a moral compromise of one kind or another. <laughs> but yeah, I went to school, in, in uh, undergrad school in Pennsylvania, and then went to the University of Chicago. And, you know, just found a job in Michigan. So I was teaching at Jackson Community College for a while. I always wanted to farm. So got a farm here, a small farm. In, in Hudson? Yeah, Is in that, Hudson. Okay. And for many years farmed hay, but I'm not doing that anymore. My shoulders kind of gave out. But yeah, for a lot of years, just farmed hay in the summer. It was never a full-time thing because uh, the teaching was the full-time job and that but the summers I always wanted to just farm and you know a little bit in the summer I love farming hay that was what, just great so and why why the need to farm and maybe why why love why do you love hay 
I don't know. I need to be outside. I love to be outside. And it's a good excuse uh, and to be out in the midst of things. And that close association with the natural world has always been important. As a kid, I love to be outside. I think just one of those things that some of the passions that develop early in your life, you know, just stick with you in one way or another. And I, I, since I didn't have to worry about it as a full-time job, I could enjoy it a lot more. I didn't have to worry about the weather as much. It wouldn't be a disaster if, uh, you know, the hay got rained on. But even though it was hay, because you say in your book that you were very attuned to yeah. the the um some something your was it your grandfather who told you to look at the the parting like if it parts like hair like the clouds How to see the high cirrus clouds yes. yeah right no no I was very aware of the weather because I mean it was still a part time income so I didn't want it all to go to rot but on the other hand it wasn't the kind of stress that a lot of people feel uh, you know if they're farming full time yes. Yeah, I love how you said you've always been in sort of that the um, the 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 moral <laughs> the like, compromise the compromise because of the tobacco. That's, yeah. that's hilarious. It was yeah, it, it was very funny as a kid because I grew up in a Mennonite community, and of course nobody smoked. It was sort of like a sin to smoke, but right. we, we raised tobacco <laughs> for a living, and so. But you you your family wasn't Mennonite. It was my dad we, had been raised in a Mennonite family, but my mom was not. So when he married her. We were not raised Mennonite, but a bunch of his relatives are, still are. And so it felt like that was the defining community there, which was really interesting because a lot of moral questions were raised. You know, were you going to have a TV? Could you have a color TV? These things were really issues. <laughs> Black and white TV closer to the, I don't know, the, That's right. the foundation of Well, TV. that was a decision to start with. And then once that was accepted, then the color came along and you had to decide that. But I, I appreciated uh, the social justice issues they were concerned with and the way they addressed moral issues and whether they wanted to bring a consumer culture into their life. But when it came to tobacco, questions were not asked because it was the, you know, it was a living. Right. And uh, many years later, I saw a friend of mine who said her family told her that tobacco had medicinal uses. And I, this was before the 60s. So the Surgeon General report, you know, hadn't come out yet. But nonetheless, um, it, it was, it's a real interesting dilemma. And I guess in some ways you could argue, well, if you're growing the tobacco, you're not you know, you're not completely the one that's putting the different additives into the cigarettes. Right. And you're not or, smoking it. And you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, was, I was a brewer. I actually felt sometimes like with seeing some of the regulars when you'd think, you know, I love making this yeah. and, and I love giving it to them. But then it's like, oh, yeah. look how it's ruining so-and-so. Well, love. and I still love tobacco plants. For many years, yeah. I grew and my dad would send me seeds and I'd grow some plants because it's a beautiful plant. It's very velvety leaves. It's all that tar that's bad for you is a fuzzy kind of leaf. And when you rub it, your hands get all black from the tar. But wow. it's really a beautiful flower. It has a gorgeous stalk of flowers in the middle and so, yeah, the, I guess I've always been interested in these sort of paradoxical, um, complicated relationships we have to the natural world, to economies, you know, to, the, to, to just deciding what we're going to do, how we're going to live in the natural world, how we can sort of live as, well, I'd like to live as invisibly as possible, but that doesn't seem to be the way of the world right now. Or, yeah, or maybe maybe not that, because you wouldn't want to be one of those buried streams, right? I mean, right. it's part, you're part of the earth, and yeah. so, yeah, yeah, but maybe not to the... Right. <laughs> well, we've always That's tried to control nature. I mean, it's been a huge part of human history, and I guess I never realized 
until recently how thoroughly agriculture has changed the natural world all over the globe. It's, it's, you know, people think of it as idyllic and pastoral, as if it's sort of a natural way of being. And immune from regulations and laws by the sounds of it. Well, yeah, because if it's a good thing, you know, and and farmers are good people, you don't want to... penalize them for doing what is good. But as it has turned out over the years, and and in many ways from the beginning, I mean, there have been devastating um, impacts from agriculture from the times humans started doing it. But because of the scope of things now, it's especially damaging. And we can see what it's doing to rivers, what it's doing to air, and now what it's doing to global warming, too. Really huge contributor to global warming. Well, it was interesting because um, the, the second part of the book, you have essays, and um, while there aren't, it's not chock full of statistics, it's not some, it's something that reads very um, smoothly and, 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 and enjoyably, except in, a, you know, you have the sense of horror when you're, you, you really get the horror across, Janet, right. in, in these essays. But um, I think there was one where you said, this this huge I forget if it was thirty percent of of the land that covers the earth is actually either devoted to livestock production or the feed for the That's livestock right. and and yeah. then and and I think you did some math for us yeah. there to follow it through with the I was really surprised gases. I was surprised to read that too that was from a UN report that came out mm-hmm. this year and it was I mean you just you don't think of it that way but when you see the fields what we think of as fields of food. It's corn and soybeans, but it's not food for us directly. It's food for animals. And that's true over all over the world or for grazing. Lots of areas are used for grazing as well. But in a way that might be... Um it sounds like you were you're a proponent. I mean, I guess we'll get to all these ideas, but you're yeah. a proponent more for that, like having the well for cows out on and- pasture. It's a little different if you're grazing animals on open range land. That's that's not an issue that we address much here in Michigan. It's more yeah. uh, the other livestock systems. But yeah, it's been a shock to me because where I live near Hudson. I mean, there have always been farms, always a lot of fa- small farms. Is that where you moved when you first came to Michigan? Yes, I've lived there for almost Janet? 40 years. Yeah, so I've been there a long time, and that's where my farm is. I, I know the watersheds really well. I've studied the streams. There's a beautiful stream at my farm. And so when, in the last 10 years, it's that recent, these huge livestock operations, mostly dairies, but a couple pig operations too, have moved in. And it has transformed the landscape and really degraded watersheds. We've had several streams declared impaired by the state of Michigan because of manure discharges. And is that due to your testing and people that you know that have formed this coalition following up on it? Well, in part, we have a small group of people, but we did get a grant to do some water monitoring From several years Club? ago. Yep, yep. It was a community action grant, and this was in 2001, so it's quite a few years ago. But at that point, there, these facilities were new, and there wasn't much monitoring by the state or anyone. So, I think yeah. you said it, it moved in in 1997. Was that to that our was area first, or that, to the United States in That general? was just to my area. Okay. No, they've been around in various places in the, in the country before then. But uh, it's sort of just boomed. With, recent with farm bills and subsidies, it has promoted these large facilities. Which, which are... Which, which you call, and I think is the, the term, CAFO? Like yeah, or CAFO. CAFO, yeah, It's confined animal feeding operation. People say it different ways, but yeah. And it's a technical term 
that's used by the government to define an extremely large livestock operation. A CAFO... 15,000, right? Well, a dairy has to be 700 cows or more. They do it by by the amount of waste the animals produce, so that the, a CAFO for a chicken operation would be, they'd have many, many more thousands because of the little chickens. But if, at least for dairies, and that's really the only uh, system I know very well, it's 700 cows or more. And some of the, the biggest ones around me have 4,000 cows. And that, you know, they have much, about the same amount of waste as 20 people, each one. So you're talking a large city, the sewage from a large city coming out of one facility and then and since you have multiple so it's yeah we have 12 in in our area yeah it's a major amount of waste and you said that it used to well it's a saying in michigan you can't go six miles without hitting a lake or a stream and now you said the same can be said in our area of a a waste lagoon yeah yeah they have huge huge lagoons they call them or waste pits they're acres and acres large they are as big as some lakes and they're filled there. The waste is liquefied and pumped into these pits. And then from there, it's pumped into tankers and hauled to fields and sprayed on fields. So it's a, it's a liquid system, not like cows on dairies in the past where they'd be out on pasture and their droppings would fall and be fairly dry to begin with. And then they just sort of dry and decompose in the soil. So the big problem we've had is the fact that this is a liquid system. Is it because they spray out these big, long containment facilities to get the manure out, and so they right. add water to it? Or is it because the cows, their systems are just no, so no. Water, botched? Water is okay. added. Tons, m- gallons and gallons of water added. The first things these facilities did was drill huge groundwater wells. So a lot of gr- clean groundwater is pumped directly onto manure to wash it out of the facility, pump it to these pits. And water that we're not going to have. You know, oh, people, no. Like, and the parts of the world just don't have. Yeah. Well, yeah. Janet, let's take a short break. Um, okay. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Janet Kaufman's book, Trespassing, Dirt Stories and Field Notes. Janet will be reading tonight at Shaman Drum, 7 p.m. We'll be back. All that love, all those mistakes What else can a poor man make? That I give up a life for crime I gave it to a friend of mine Something else was on my mind the only ghost I'm holding by I hear her howling down below Idaho, Idaho Welcome back. If you're just joining us uh, today on Living Writers, Janet Kaufman and her book, her latest collection, Trespassing, Dirt Stories and Field Notes. Um, Janet's going to read for us a little bit. But before we do that, Janet, um, I wanted to ask you about balancing um, 
like this passion that you have and, and you're very, um, maybe because of this child from childhood, this connection to the, the earth, like literally being grounded. Um, you have this passion, which is like also an advocacy for the earth. And how do you feel that's affecting your art, the writing, like what stories you tell, because you're, you're a writer as you know, as well as a farmer, would you say it's yeah. equally or is it hard to even why give it percentages? It is something that's been on my mind from the start of my writing, even though this environmental crisis didn't exist then. But from the beginning, I thought about language as related to the natural world. It comes out of our bodies. It's like air out of our mouths. And I, th- I think of it as a physical thing. And so always in my writing, and it was mostly poetry to start with, I thought about sounds and rhythms and really like the sense of making language visible and making it sort of weirdly complicated sometimes like the natural world you see it and you see layers all at one time and that doesn't make you crazy you know you (laughs) you just see it and so there's a way I like to experiment with language trying those things when this recent environmental crisis came along in a way it uh it changed some of the ways I thought about my writing. First of all, sometimes I wanted to be really clear for a change and really <laughs> explain what the issue was. So some of these essays are fairly direct and uh, you know not complicated to follow. On the other hand, and as you mentioned at the beginning, this is a book that has both fiction and nonfiction. And I like that combination because it's kind of strange in a book to find that. And for me, it helps give a sense that this is a strange situation. You can read it through fiction where you sort of feel more immersed and maybe a little disoriented by the voices you hear or the images that come along. Uh, But I've felt that way all the time. I've been so stunned with the surreal quality to life suddenly. It doesn't seem real sometimes. It doesn't seem right. Well, I mean, if you say the words manure lagoon. Yeah. Right. There's no other. There's it right. just sounds like incredible, like off the charts. There's so much of this language that's amazing. These bunkers, the silage bunkers. I mean, there's a kind of military language that has come in with these facilities. Uh, that kind of discrepancy between the natural world and the liquefied waste. You think, geez. And so yeah, a lot of this is a for a writer. It's a very interesting thing to think about. You know, how how should you write? How should the language approach this problem and approach the what you're seeing in front of you? Because you want the clarity of the ideas, right. yet you don't want it to be didactic or, or simple. Because it's not simple. It is no. so complicated. <laughs> right. There's so many things I had no idea about. I mean, I've learned so much in the last 10 years. I I didn't realize how... All the fields where I live are artificially drained with, you yes. know, I mean, it's a huge subject in itself because it, it wasn't that way in Pennsylvania. It's not that way everywhere. But in southern Michigan, this was all swampland. And so it's all the fields that are farmed have artificial drainage systems. And that's dating back from like the late 1800s, oh, yeah, right? From the, so it's, from the original settlers, the white settlers who came here. The first thing they did, they cut down all the trees and they drained the water. Then we had to if they had to farm for their homestead claim. And so to do that, and it continues to be true, they conti- people continue to go back and retile this land. It's called tiles because it used to be clay tiles, and they're buried underground, under the plow line. 
I mean, because that, that language, even using the word tile, makes it sound it somewhat sound pretty, nice, doesn't yeah. it? But then when you said, or drainage pipes. Right. <laughs> and then had it's a like an underground picture. sewer system now because the liquefied manure drains right to these pipes and it goes these pipes go right to streams if you're driving along sometimes you might see a ditch or a stream at the road culvert and if you look closely you sometimes see pipes coming out and that's what that is they're coming out sometimes every 30 60 feet in every field and so anything that liquid that hits the surface usually rainwater that's what it was there for drains into those underground pipes and flows into streams. Well, you can imagine the thing that people did not really think about before building these huge liquid systems was this was going to be contaminated liquid applied to fields. So it goes... And goes so much further than the fields themselves. Oh, absolutely. You said it can shoot out like many... Many miles downstream. Many miles away. So it's... Yeah. And in fact, that's the one thing... uh, you can't see this, but I've got a brochure here that our little group put out, and one of the pictures shows black manure flowing on the ice of a frozen stream. And this happened in winter when liquid manure was applied on a field. It entered a drainage tile. They have little pipes that come up from the ground periodically. And it flowed. It, it didn't come out until several miles downstream into this Toad Creek. And then it flowed on the surface of the ice down the street. It's one of the most visible images we've had of a very commonplace problem that's usually invisible. And, and you said this is this photo was taken and this event happened in the winter, and yet right. in, in the essay, um, in your book, it also describes May through June, you visiting Toad Creek and seeing the, the murkiness, the discoloration, and the, that there weren't the, the, the organisms, oh, the, like there weren't toads life. there anymore, there weren't... It contaminated that stream for a good long while, and a good long stretch. But, but so, so do you think all, like, do you think that your art now will be entwined always with these ideas? Like how... Uh, Probably, because this is going to be a lifelong issue. It's, it, it's beginning to change, but so slowly... And the new farm bill just perpetuates these systems. So this is a, we're looking the rest of my life, this is going to be an issue. So in some ways it will. It may not be as directly and uh, immediately as these last 10 years, but it's not going to go away. Because in your early, your, your collection, Places in the World a Woman Could Walk, we definitely have um, farm settings there right. as well. And then but this, this, as soon as you enter into the first few stories, there, there's more of an activism component. Absolutely. Like it's definitely right there, even though you've got these, these characters and you're being right. taught things like, well, one guy's from the Netherlands. And right. He's, uh, Workers and the, are from Mexico. This is really true. Nine of the 12 facilities, dairies uh, at our in my area have uh, were set up by a Dutch American development company because it's outlawed you say in in the Netherlands well, it's not now outlawed. right it's uh, not outlawed but or they it's more? much more controlled okay. yeah cuz i mean they're below sea level so they have to really watch <laughs> what what goes into their fields and into their watersheds and theirs will be more immediate uh, whereas ours might take a, like this decade to really yeah. be fully surfacing like yeah. well, read to us Janet well, if you don't mind <laughs> well, one of the sections in the fiction part is called monitoring, 10-spot samples. And since I was water monitoring, a lot of these are the actual names of sites we monitored, but it's not really about monitoring. It's uh, like these different voices in different places. Uh, just to, to kind of give you a, a glimpse of things, I'm only going to read one site, and it's Toad Creek, which I just mentioned to you. So it's Toad Creek. Does not turn men into princes. 
not with the stinking stream of black like a scarf cut loose from a mourner. It flows over the ice, water turned upside down, its shadow on top. A toad is a toad and not here. What adornments do we have now? What croakers? And why are the women propped at the edges like stalks? They dip their buckets in without reflection, down at the stream with buckets, but not for drinking. What a surprise to be here, a country no one imagined, a peasantry once again, women with baskets and buckets, Mexicans with the cows, the palest men in their counting houses, courtyards, and cab-mounted air-conditioned machinery, always earth-moving. They call it earth-moving. They claim they're getting somewhere, scraping and hauling, bunker to bunker, pit to pit. Thank you, Janet. You're welcome. So it's that kind of thing. That's, the little sections are like that. It's not that you really know exactly what's being said sometimes. Uh, sometimes there are characters in the, the different sites. Sometimes there are not. But it was interesting. And sometimes it's the point of view of the dairy guys, too. Yes. And it was really important to me to try to give a sense of the multiple points of view. I mean, everybody's got a stake in this, anybody who lives there. And uh, I don't like some of the angles, but yes, <laughs> they're yeah. there. And and why? So was it? Well, I would say it must be intentional that you put the fiction half of the book that you kept them yeah. separate. I can, right. and then and so why why the fiction first, Janet? Well, I yeah, I really wanted to because it is a little less direct. It's a little more disorienting and fragmented, and I really wanted that because it's sort of the way the whole situation hit me. You know, you just sort of get bits of this issue for a couple of years until we began to put a lot of things together. And then I wanted the clarity that some of the more comprehensive um, essays to come afterwards so that you could sort of bring, you felt like as a reader you were going through a process rather than if the essays had been first, I really felt like the fiction would have just seemed like examples, you know, of something you already knew. And so... Although, if people mind reading the fiction, they can always read the nonfiction first and then go back and read the stories as examples. <laughs> but, uh, but for me, at least, it, it, it just felt like the confusion I had at the beginning, the way I began to see what was going on slowly, began to hear the vocabulary slowly, and, uh, and learned that way. And it is, it, there's... There are interesting moments that are also created with this structure, um, because I think there's a moment in one of the first stories where uh, maybe it was a commissioner, maybe the drainage commissioner would say, um, well, uh, one character called the drainage commissioner to say something like was being cleared off the property and, and, and it looked down this road, look at and it looked yeah. almost like hell to the, the narrator. Oh, but that, then, yeah, and, the road mess. That was the road. Mm -hmm. And the commissioner said, well, I can see the future coming down the road. Yeah. And then later on in one of the essays, you have the, the there's actually a the, commissioner. And it really happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple instances like that where you meet something in a story and then you hear another or almost exact version in the fiction in the essays and it's really true there were just i mean when that was a road commissioner they were ripping out trees on both sides of the road burning them in huge heaps it was it was like hell it, and it went and on. you lost beautiful trees oh, from yeah. your own probably yeah. like two maples or huge, so like huge huge trees right, yeah. yeah and it was driving me crazy i was really distraught and and one of the road commissioners did stop by one day and uh you know i 
I said, you know, this just looks like hell. It did. And, and he said exactly these words. When I look down that road, I see a brighter future. I w when he left, I walked in the house and wrote it down. I just, for one thing, it just amazed me that he could say it and that he believed it. I mean, it w he wasn't just making that up. He really saw a brighter future in that hell. So, I mean, that, it made such a strong impression. I wrote that one story first. But then I, I went back to it in the essay, too, because it really uh, it was so indicative of the conflicting visions that people have of how you have a better life. You know, for me, I'd cover everything with trees and vegetation and do research in perennial crops, you know, all this stuff to, to green everything up and make it um, much less abusive. But it's not even seen as abusive by you know, the people who practice the, these systems of livestock production. And it's, and you just wonder about the perceptions there, because like right. you said, this was very symbolic, the brighter future. Right. Well, a lot of it depends on money. If the farm bill is different, if it wouldn't be subsidizing these and subsidizing organic, you know, uh, subsidizing perennial crop research, there's all kinds of things farm bills could put money into. But, and then those would be valued. And people would see that as a value. But right now, it goes to commodities, to corn, to lagoons. And vast production. And so it really promotes these facilities. And those people have a lot at stake. They're multi-million dollar facilities. But you, you even give some examples of the checks that they receive, though. Oh, yeah. It, There's a wonderful database online, Environmental Working Group. I think it's ewg.org or something. You can look it up. And they have... Uh, gone through all the farm subsidies for every person in every state. And it's really interesting to see. Yeah, some people get millions and millions of dollars. Uh, Whereas so many people, like the smaller farms, have been wiped off the right. face of the country. Absolutely. Because they are not getting the subsidies. Right. Yeah. But it is. It's a value, isn't it? That's that's right. what we're we're doing at the moment. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, with the tobacco farming, that was the income. So you aren't going to question the basic values if it's your life, but if it's your livelihood. But if it doesn't, get, now that they've removed tobacco subsidies, you know, no, hardly anybody's farming tobacco anymore. You can determine how a culture eats, how it lives, how, what its landscapes look like. Uh, but it has to be, there has to be leadership at a national level, which we have not had. There has to be programs that promote positive things rather than things that are destructive, both to the environment and to whole communities and watersheds. Well, this, is, this book is a step towards that. So let, let's, I hope more people are, are reading that. Let's take a break. Okay. Um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. straight line over rivers farms and state lines the distance from A to where you'd be it's only fingerless that I see I touch the place where I'd find your face my fingers increase of distant dark places 
hang my coat up in the first bar There is no peace that I've found so far The laughter penetrates my silence As drunken men find flaws in silence Their words mostly noises Ghosts with just voices in my memory I like music to me The miles from where you are I lay down on the cold ground I, I pray that something picks me up And sets me down Welcome back. If you're just tuning in uh, today on Living Writers, Janet Kaufman and her latest collection, which is both fiction and nonfiction, Trespassing, Dirt Stories and Field Notes. Thanks to Alex Sergey for engineering today, too, by the way. Um, tonight, Janet is reading at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. and it's July 9th, 2008. In case this show is coming at you at another time. Right. <laughs> um, one never knows, right? Um, so, Janet, at the at the beginning of the program, we, we talked a little bit about you've just retired from right. EMU um, and that you've you chose to come to Michigan and, and be. And now this place, it, it, does Michigan seem more more of your own place? Like, I, I mean, it's hard to get away from your foundations in Pennsylvania, of course, you wouldn't yeah. want to, but... Um. Oh, it's absolutely my home now. And, and it was funny, because when I change landscapes, it's hell. It's so hard for me to get used to a different place. Um, so when I first came to Michigan, I just... It's like I didn't know how to see it. And I think it's that way for anybody. You move to another... You move to the mountains, and it takes you a long time to figure out what you're dealing with. In terms no, you're of so right, really. Light and vegetation and all that. So, I mean, the first seven years I was in Michigan, I was a lost soul because I didn't know. I mean, there are all these swamps. There weren't these kinds of swamps in Pennsylvania. And when water flows, it would just sit there in the field. In Pennsylvania, it flows downhill. It goes into streams, you know, and it seems... To make sense. In Michigan, things sort of sat around and looked scrappy. And now, now that I know it, it I mean, it's a beautiful place. It, to me, it, it really is. It's very unassuming. None of the grandeur, at least I'm talking southern Michigan here. I mean, oh, right. none of the real grandeur of, uh, you know, the Rockies or anything like that. But in its own way, now that I know it, it's like anything else. When you really know its complexities, it's just so interesting. So dear to you as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, a couple of us have been walking the length of the stream at my farm. We did it really fanatically for a year, you know, taking notes on all the different things. And I learned so much about the sequence of plants and wildflowers and vegetation and the way that things are always coming and going. You know, it's not just, you know, one thing. You have to know a whole series and a whole sequence. And I just love that um, once you, there's no way to know the whole thing, but once you begin to know what's going on in the natural world around you, I mean, it just is a wonderful pleasure to look around. So yeah, I'm really at home here be tough to leave, although everybody talks about it all the time. What if a CAFO moved right next door? Could you stay? I mean, I'm only three miles from three different CAFOs. So depending which way the it's, wind blows, I really 
smell it. It seems like you're already next door. Then, it, it's close, but it, it's not as bad as it for some many people live, you know, within a couple hundred feet of these places. And, and there's these floodlights that you describe in yeah, the fiction. And constant truck traffic. I mean, it's like living in an industrial part of a city. And the pollution is like an industrial part of a city. But uh, because there are fewer people affected, it's almost as if their lives are sacrificed to this. They just they can't afford to sell the place. I mean, the, the CAFOs themselves buy up a lot of property around them. And then it spreads. Yeah. Yeah. As well. But so, yeah, it's. It's hard to know how much you can take before you leave. But right now, I mean, I'm just so committed to watershed work. And even even going beyond the CAFO issue, helping restore water quality to, to streams in rural watersheds, it's just a really big issue for me. So, yeah, I'll be around. I'll just continue to do that stuff. Well, thank goodness then. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I, I I love the parts where you talk also about um, uh, in Ypsilanti and and maybe even in Ann Arbor. I'm not sure. Like these, uh, the, there's many places that we're just not aware of where the the, the water is literally buried um, beneath us, and and yeah. we don't even have um, there's an um, an awareness or and the memories disappearing because one of the last maps was charted in 1960, yeah. and you. And during your research, you you got it from the library, and the person said, "Well, I'm supposed to watch you closely." Or, yeah, that's the only one they got. The one map. <laughs> I hope they've got some since then. But yeah, you're uh, you're referring to that the one essay called "Buried Water," and it it came about because uh, in my own discovery of the buried tiles in farmland, I mean, I began to realize, of course, cities have stormwater systems all the time where former streams are buried in pipes so you don't have so many bridges uh, you still have to take water that falls on the ground in cities somewhere and it's true in almost every city many streams have been buried yeah i wrote about uh, the one on the emu campus that used to be there and now is not but there's also some in ann arbor i think allen creek i mean other people would know more about ann arbor but there's some that have been buried. There are also streams and rivers now being resurfaced in some cities because now they're a virtue and yes, they want a riverfront. Yeah, through right. there. Yep. <laughs> Whereas before, I mean, and this was true long, long ago. A friend of mine gave me a book after that essay came out on the lost rivers of London. And there were like 12 major uh, rivers that are buried in London. And it goes way back to the time when there was, you know, just sewage, raw sewage, human sewage thrown out into the gutters. And the streams were just like flowing, like what is now the case in agriculture. Mm. So we're really dealing with like 19th century conditions in, in rural watersheds in Michigan. But in, in any case, in London, uh, the same thing. First, they covered it with boards, with wood. So they were kind of wooden enclosures. But now with reinforced concrete and everything, you can, you know, you can bury a good-sized uh, river. And nobody knows. You know, once they, those things are gone, it's really hard. I've realized how aware I am now. When I walk anywhere, of just slight dips in the landscape, you know, you walk on a sidewalk, all of a sudden it'll dip down and then come up and you think, hmm, drainage area. You know, there yes. would have been some trickle of water flowing on the surface. As, especially, especially in this community because it's yeah. a watershed, because the landscape is so different. Yeah. That's how it would naturally work if given the chance. Absolutely. But because 
we have the ability to pipe things away, you don't see it. And it's, to me, it's one of the really significant things that people need to know what the natural systems are. And if you can't see them, it's just a struggle. Like, I didn't know there were tiles on my farm when I bought the farm. It took a couple of years till they started to break, and I realized there were little holes, and then I realized there was this clay tile down in there. And I mean, it just is a revelation. So it's no surprise to me that a lot of people aren't aware of how serious this livestock issue is because it's really hard to see. You can drive right by one of these facilities and it just looks like a giant warehouse. Yes. You would not know it's and a farm. And that's purposeful because you talk about that um, in the stories and the essays too. Aesthetically, right. it, it's you could only really see something perhaps from the air. That's right. Because they keep it sort of behind either. I'm imagining right. the, the, the fronting, the buildings look nice when they're close to the road and then the lagoons themselves are behind. Absolutely. Trees. One of the short stories you have a grandmother going for a, a kind of a, a ramshackle canoe trip with two of her granddaughters and they stumble upon right. um, this. And, and it's, yeah. uh, you know, and it's been this way in our country, even with things. It reminded me of Washington State with the, the trees, like uh, uh, where they'll keep like a line of trees near the, the road. Clear cutting. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, and we don't the, like people to see. One of the most wonderful books sort of revealed a lot of this to me is called Wasteland. It's a photography book that's all aerial photography, mostly in mining country or in Colorado. And just there's so much of American landscape you cannot know unless you see it from the air. So the, the wonderful thing about flying. And not from so high up, though, right? Like, well, yeah. Because we're traveling, it's, it's, or do you think if we just looked out the window more without cloud I cover? I think looking we, out, you see yeah. a ton. <laughs> I mean, at 35,000 feet, which is about as high as most planes go, you can see CAFOs. They're little silver lines, and they're all over the place, and they glint, you know, in mm. the sun as you fly mm. over. And then you'll see a little pondish thing beside it completely but, black and absorbing the light yeah <laughs> or if it looks blue it's not if you were actually down there with a cup of water Absolutely. dipping out of it but yeah i mean you can see these things they're that big and i mean it's not like a huge open pit mine but it's it's a change in the landscape and now that with manure lagoons getting larger and larger they're occupying so many acres that it really does almost look like mining from the air and and what it's doing the the ruination brought to the the land is yeah. and the people around it that's the thing it's it's not just an aesthetic it's it's a health issue it's, oh it really and is it's not just about not being more and more disconnected from the earth it's that yeah. it's it's going to start it is so us. much different from traditional farming where you did have some odors and things but this is the it's just so much different. It's a different smell when you have all this waste collected in a pit for so long. When that's taken out of there, it is a really putrid, horrible stench. And the, these are actual air emissions. This is air pollution, and it's measurable. Hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, you're inhaling these things. I mean, it's really, when we're out water monitoring, if it if you get a whoof of that's coming off a field, you immediately register it physically. Your eyes water. People get sick. I mean, physically sick. You get terrible headaches. And there have been times it has been so strong at my house that I've had to put, I have an old house, so it's not very well insulated. And I have to put towels like under the door so it doesn't seep in. It smells so bad. 
And so you have to be fairly close, you know, within a few miles usually to experience that. But nonetheless, those emissions travel a long way. And the deposition of ammonia in streams is a big problem, for instance. And that happens way away where nobody's smelling it. And so this is and, – and how you're, you're talking about this, Janet, this has taken research, right? Like there are these websites and these different organizations out there, but you're, you're actually part of a grassroots collective right. – um, because it's not easily, it's not something that people are talking about. No, and it took me even a while, just a simple thing like odor. You know, you talk about odor. Well, it's farm odor. Well, it's, it is and it isn't. You know, it, it's, it actually is something. If you're smelling something, you're breathing it in. Right. And then what are you breathing in? So, I mean, they are really interesting questions that takes a lot of reading because there has been research in a lot of this, but it takes a lot of work to know. And most people don't have the time, they don't have the uh, interest to do research. But once you know those things, it's so much easier to help people understand why they're suffering. You know, yes, you really are sick. You are made sick by this by the the air pollution. Yeah. And, and also using the art, like you're not only in the fiction of the short stories, but in how you're constructing these essays, too. Maybe we'll take a short break and then we'll come back okay. and talk about that, Janet, how you're using art to, to show... The, okay. these these ideas coming through. Okay, um, you're listening to Living Writers, uh, Janet Kaufman today. We'll be right back. You would take your own sweet time, order us a glass of wine, and we get a refill and I'm gonna fall through. Gonna fall through. Gonna fall through. We're gonna fall through. We're gonna fall through. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Janet Kaufman, her book, Trespassing. Dirt stories and field notes. Um, this collection is is part fiction. Uh, the first half of the book and the second half um, is nonfiction. Environmental studies is the the label on the back. <laughs> how the book was labeled. Um, and and in that short break, Janet and I were talking about how. Um, I mean, she's a passionate person. I think that's pretty obvious from the conversation so far today. Um, art has always been a part. It's about the writing for you. Um, when, did, when did you know you were a writer? Like, when did, when did you... Well, I probably... It, it was not the first thing I thought. I thought about farming first. I wanted to get an education so I could teach and have summers off to farm. But once I was out of graduate school, I mean, I studied literature. So I got a PhD in literature and studied poetry. I was interested in poetry as a reader and as, you know, thinking about language. So I've always been sort of theoretically really interested in language. Um, But after grad school, um, I really started writing poetry and continued to find language like the the physical material that I worked with in the way potters would work with clay. And so that would be mixed media as well, like language as the pottery itself, the layers. 
Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And I mean, I really also, think of it as, especially writing poetry, you know, you move words around, you're very aware of how they look on the page. And I love that whole aspect of language, uh, the way it's made visible, whether it's on a page or, or even when you speak, it comes out of your mouth. And the sense of the immediate physical presence of language just interests me in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I wrote poetry for a lot of years before I wrote fiction. I was very reluctant to write fiction. I I thought stories had to make sense, that they had to have beginnings and ends. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm old enough. But you that, cast that off, though, Janet. Well, pretty, finally. Right? Didn't you? It yeah. took a while. <laughs> it took a while. So I've, what I've read, you did. Yeah. It, but I didn't write uh, fiction for a long while. It's, for whatever reason, I had imagined poetry was one thing and fiction was something else. And that you had to ha- do something different. But then I read Grace Paley for one thing. And I loved her stories because I thought, oh my God, all you have to do is sit a couple people around and let them talk and you have a story. Yes. And it wasn't like somebody had to go out on an adventure or they didn't have to come to some <laughs> conclusion or there didn't have to be a moment of recognition. Right. You know, which all seemed false to me. I mean, that kind of realistic writing always has seemed completely phony to me. So anyway, I started writing stories with just uh, fragments of what I thought of as daily stuff, especially people just talking with each other. To me, that was really action. And the rhythms then of the language would be something you could hone in on. Right. And you could follow words. You could, you were aware of people speaking words if there were people in stories, or you could be aware as a reader that this was a constructed kind of a story. It wasn't it wasn't invisible. I mean, a lot of fiction writers really do write, use language as an invisible material, and they want it to be that way. They want you to see the story, to get into the characters, and get the into the action. Mm. That's right. And for whatever reason, I just, I'm not interested in that, and I can't seem to do it, for one thing. I just uh, can't do it. So, I mean, even though some of my stories are sort of realistic, there are people in some of them, and they're actually doing a few things, not usually very much, but that what really interests me is the sense as both a writer and a reader that this is language at play. This is language shaping things. So it, it has, in my mind, it has a presence of language, of visibility, that's not true with a lot of fiction. And I mean, I just, maybe it's because I like poetry so much, because poetry, you know, is very visible and you're aware of it. But I like that in fiction, too. I don't care what happens at all. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And then, and now in your essays as well, um, because earlier, I think off air a little bit, we were talking about how you're using um, these uh, almost poetic constructions within the essays. Uh, in a few, almost like prose poems. Yeah. Can you, yeah, tell, tell yeah, us about it. Yeah, there are a couple. I mean, some of the essays are, are sort of developed op-ed pieces, you know, so they are pretty discursive and straightforward. But a few of them are a little more strange and a little more twisty and a little unclear, but very intensively uh, using language to address this notion of multiplicity and uh, natural layering. Uh, so, again, it goes back to this, a belief that, uh, as a writer, it's interesting to use this physical material and match to match the natural world, which is just wonderfully layered and complex for me. 
So there's one essay in there called, I forget what it's, Malinger Meander in oh, Perpetuity. Cr- <laughs> and, and I put in parentheses a, a creed yes. or something. So it really is sort of my philosophy, you my know, you belief. Di- you didn't even have to put a creed because when I was reading it, I actually... I just, I wrote there, this is like a way of living and writing. Yeah. And during this, like, it, it, I got that, it's, that that's what you were doing with this piece. Oh, I'm glad, because I thought I had to put it, uh, <laughs> because I, I wasn't sure myself if it was coming through very clearly. But I I love the way it's just, those words are wonderful words to me. And, they, and to think about and to write in that weird way about each of the words and why it's important to me as a writer and as a person, you know, a, a, a activist, uh, just an ordinary person, why certain words become sort of significant and central to the way you think about the course of a life. So, yeah, in perpetuity is one that's highly questionable. Uh, the <laughs> wetland restoration on my farm, there's a lien on the deed that says it can't be de- destroyed or disturbed in perpetuity. And I love that, but you know, geol- in geology, there is no in perpetuity. So, right, because it's the constant flux. Yes, isn't there? yeah. It's like the, but at yeah. least for now, for the piece of paper, it's on. I like that phrase. Yes, and and it would give you something to, and and as you joked in, in the essay too, and it's on a piece of paper, which would right. you know we can't as human beings hold on yeah. to much at all, let let alone like a paper. And in, in years the down the line, that will be yeah. flimsiest thing there is. And it's the other thing about writing, I think I like. It sense of almost ephemeral quality rather than thinking of it as having to write something that will last forever. I mean, the, the, some of the older books are already yellowing. The paper starts, you know, you can see it's already beginning to deteriorate. And I think I really like that sense of human material decaying and going back into the natural world. To me, that's a ultimate consolation. Well, 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 I haven't read your novels in the series, but that seems to be the final yeah. section would be, it was titled Rot. Right. So I can, that's, mm-hmm. it's been sort of a, an obsession or, or yeah. a consideration of yours for a long time. Decay is a really good word in my dictionary. I love that. I love yeah. how that's like, because for some people would shy away from that. Right. The same with Malinger, whereas you take it as as yeah. and, and in its honesty, it's, really it's a positive word. Yeah. yeah. No, I think we try so much to accomplish things and be successful and do so much. And the doing, in uh, humans are so smart. The doing things, they can do terrible things, and we do. We destroy much more than we sit around and have a good time and and enjoy the world. I mean, and that doesn't mean doing nothing, but it means a different way of defining the value of a life and finding the pleasure in a life. And and as a as a writer as an artist you're creating and so you're making something. Right. And some of the things now and we talked about this uh, off the air too is um so using mixed media using found materials in about the last 10 years in teaching I just decided uh, instead of just doing writing workshops the way I usually had done writing workshops where people bring in things on paper, we would do at least some projects that were made with found materials and how to use some words on them or at least some text. one. <laughs> it didn't have to be much. But the rest of it was uh, 
really like a construction. So they ended up being mixed media pieces. Some looked sculptural. Some were books or book forms, weird book forms. And it was wonderful. I enjoyed that so much. And I, that's still one thing I'm planning to do, uh, even though I'm retired. Is, to is do, that what you're going to be working yeah, just, on a lot? Yeah, and for, both for myself, but also to do some workshops in mixed media, because it's not part of too many creative writing programs. Oh, I'd love to go there. Yeah. Let me know. Yeah. I'd love to be part it's of that. It's so much fun. And it at least for me, it connects as well to using these physical things from the material world, often this trash that people have just junked somewhere. So it's it's part of seeing who we are as human beings, trash makers <laughs> mainly, but also creative people who can do things, can recoup and regenerate and reinvent. Transform. Absolutely. <laughs> Look at the resources Absolutely. and and have and have to do that. We should that should be what we do. And not be okay with um not being uh, informed about what we're walking on top of in some way. That's something that I will really carry from your book, Janet. I, I don't mean to keep uh, going back to that, but the idea of the buried water and and the not knowing of right. people who you spoke to who ought to have known. Yeah. Um, not to sound like I'm wagging a finger. No, um, but ignorance is, is doom. I mean, it's not that you can know everything, but there are some serious things about the life around you at any given moment that it really makes sense to pay attention to and uh, and part address. of that is sus sustenance and that would be yeah. the water in the air yeah. where and, you get your food yes yeah mm -hmm. but and also i think equally and not just for artists i think as human beings people need to have like this uh connection to imaginative uh, resources within themselves oh, as well. Oh, I agree completely. And not just for problem solving, although that helps. <laughs> yeah, it does help. But cre I mean, creativity to me is really a sort of ultimate uh, defining presence in human lives. And without it, there's real loss. And then other worse things take its place. And if you're not creatively involved with ideas and with the natural world, you lose so much. It's part of being human, isn't it? To me, it is. Not just yeah. being an artist, although you can, it, it's important. I'm so glad we started talking. It crosses the boundaries. You know, you're not just an artist with art things. The art right. really is part of the life and the, the vision that you have of your own life and of the world. And being connected to the right. world. Not just that's putting it very simply. But, right, but that's yeah. exactly right. Well, Janet, thank you so much for being Thanks. on the program. And You're welcome. And come back and talk anytime. It's been good talking to you. Thanks. <laughs> and tonight, it's July 9th, 2008. Janet Kaufman is at Shaman Drum reading um, from her book uh, put out by Wayne State University Press um, from their Made in Michigan Writers series, a great series uh, to check out. Her book, Trespassing, Dirt Stories and Field Notes. Thanks to Alex Sergey. Um, also, thanks to DJ Electronica for um, like always doing these great sets right before Living Writers. Um, uh, thanks so much for listening, for streaming. Uh, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel, Living Writers. I can say that I've lived here In honor and danger But I'm just an animal And cannot explain
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, July 9, 2008. From Pacifica Station KPFK in LA, I'm Aura Bogado. The Senate updates surveillance laws. We'll hear what that will allow Big Brother to do. Attorney General Michael McCasey denies politics play a factor in hiring at the Justice Department. India's coalition government struggles to stay alive after a major split over the US India nuclear deal. Plus, we'll hear about the inconclusive wrap up at the G8 summit in Japan. Those stories and more, but first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines. Former EPA official Jason Burnett has blown the whistle on Vice President Dick Cheney's office, saying it was involved in removing portions of Senate testimony about the health risks of climate change. Francesca Rhiannon has the latest. The U.S. Senate may subpoena documents alleged to show White House censorship of EPA findings on the dangers of greenhouse gas pollution. Last year, the Supreme Court ruled the EPA must review the health risks of greenhouse gas emissions. As a result, a top EPA official sent emails to the White House warning about risks to human health and the environment. The White House refused to open the emails, according to EPA official Jason Burnett. Instead, White House officials asked him to send a follow up note saying the document was sent in error. Burnett refused. The EPA warnings were based on findings by the Centers for Disease Control. Six pages of the CDC report on the disease impacts of global warming were censored by Vice President Dick Cheney's office. To issue a subpoena for the documents, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee would need a quorum, including two Republicans. The committee could vote on the issue as early as next week. For FSRN, I'm Francesca Rhiannon with Corporate Watchdog Radio in Amherst, Massachusetts. A workers' strike in South Africa has brought businesses in major 